collected their G.I. Joe run at some point. And welcome to episode 43, as Vince is completely unaware that we started after going, are we ready to start? Literally for 10 minutes now. I'm Mike, joined alongside. Daniel. And he already said my name. It's, that's true, and uh, it's our final show before Thanksgiving, so clearly we're at the point where we just want to get the show out, done and out of the way, I think, because we all have a week off next week. But, uh, you know, the comic gods, as they were, were not gracious, as we have a very long rundown to get through, and uh, I'll kick things off without further ado. We have Amazing Spider-Man number 53, Nick Spencer. Mark Bagley joining the pencils here. John Dell on the inks. No, uh, no Patrick Gleason. Only a Patrick Gleason cover. Uh, Peter wakes up from his dream that he can't escape. He's at a party seeing Harry Osborn and being introduced to Carly Cooper. Oh, uh, we, we've seen this before, but he's trying to reach out to MJ and trying to get to MJ, who he can't manage to get to. And boom, uh, he's woken up by Kindred, uh, who revives him and tells him tells Pete to look deep down because he knows who he is if he really searches for it. And he takes off his masks, and it's gotcha, exactly reminiscent of a, I think it's a spectacular Spider-Man panel, I can't remember the issue, Um, but it is indeed Harry Osborn, Kindred is Harry Osborn, so the possible red herring that we had last week, Dan, is, nope, it's it's definitely Harry now. Um, And that party that Pete was at was during the end of One More Day, when we see uh, Harry emerge again, because, you know, he'd been dead before that point. So, you know... Spencer's really playing into the one more day thing here as we get MJ here, Harry's back, he's kindred. And, you know, we, we've seen him, you know, allude to making a deal with the devil. A very, very fast read. Uh, last week, you know, the last issue was fast too because we got the really, really good fight with um, the Patrick Leeson pencils and choreography there. Like I said, Bagley joins this issue. I didn't think Bagley's pencils were particularly strong. Uh, Dan, I'll ask you. I thought at the party when Harry gets out of the elevator, I thought that was Norman for a second because uh, Bagley draws them very kind of the similar. But what did you think of Amazing Spider-Man 53? Yeah, I guess just to go back to that Norman Osborn thing, I think that's like the running gag through like the early appearances of the characters that they both had like the exact same haircut and they both pretty much looked alike minus like a few extra lines on Norman's face. But um, yeah, I mean, this pretty much is what we expected it to be. You know, nothing really surprising here. Um, Like you said, a lot of silent panels in this issue. So it read pretty fast, probably one of the fastest issues I've read in a while, actually, aside from that silent G.I. Joe issue we read a few months back. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I did not know the backstory on the party that Pete went to. So it's interesting to hear what that's all about. Maybe I'll go back and read that. Maybe I won't. We'll see. Um, one more day. That's in JMS's run, right? Oh, it's the very end. OK, it's is that the, the second? Yeah. Okay. Is that in the second omnibus, I guess, or? Uh, it might be the, isn't he getting three omnibuses? Oh, if he gets three, then I guess I'll read it in there too. It's, it's two. It's two. Okay. It should be in there. I don't know. I mean, it's the story everyone hates, so. <laughs> well, yeah. And then in that case, I have to read it. So, I, but, I mean, um, you know, it would make for context because it seems that we're, we're leaning towards possibly undoing this. Now, that's what we're leaning to. If that's what really happens. We don't know. Not to get to, to put on speculation hats, 
Spencer has said he prefers Black Hat to MJ, and we know Black Hat's in the, the LR issues. Yep. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the end game here is that this is going to, uh, you know, get the marriage back in the fold. And, you know, we've definitely be hinted that with the, the recent solicitations of seeing Pete and MJ on the cover with a heart around their heads. So we'll see, you know, and until we get to issue 55, 56, where they're promising the big, the big, you know, status quo change reveal, we'll, we don't know yet. And, uh, you know, it looks like we'll, we'll, we'll be back to, kind of touch up on what happens as the we get after Thanksgiving when we're, when we're back. But this was fine. I, I think Bagley does the next issue as well. I, I, I was wishing Gleason did all of this just because it looked like Bagley's pencils weren't as good as the, it seems like it's like one of every five issues he does is going to be good. So we'll yeah, see. I miss ultimate Spider-Man Bagley for sure. Oh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go read Ultimate Spider Man then. Exactly. I should read it. Not bad. It's just you know, it's not great. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's not it's not his best stuff, but yeah, it's certainly not bad at all. I enjoy it. So. Did you enjoy Avengers Marvel snapshots? <sighs> not really. Oh, sorry about the click there, but um, yeah, our next issue here is Avengers Marvel snapshot written by. Oh, I'm sorry. Avengers Marvel snapshot number one. Written by Barbara Randall Kessel, art by Stas Johnson, inks by Tom Palmer. Um, the best thing about this issue actually is the um, Iron Man Alex Ross cover. So kudos to Alex Ross. Great cover there. Love that. Um, the issue opens to a paramedic named Carrie, who is basically a leech to everyone she knows. Like everyone's asking her, like, when are you giving me this money for rent? When are you paying me back for this? And she's like, never. Goodbye. So not really liking our main character here. But anyway, we see her walking down the street when a giant robot appears in the middle of the street, destroying apartments and such. Um, I'm blanking here. You know, my co-host can probably remind me of who what this villain is. I'm not sure who it is off the top of my head. But uh, Carrie then goes around treating people when the Avengers arrive. So... I think the team at the time is like Cap, Iron Man, Vision, um, Hank, uh, Wasp. So like or Yellow Jacket, excuse me, not Hank. Well, Hank is Yellow Jacket. Anyways, so kind of like an old fashioned team. So I'm assuming like around like late 70s, early 80s, maybe, maybe like late 70s. I'm not sure. Anyways, um, so everyone basically goes down to this bunker while the Avengers are out there kicking ass. And during this time, we see Carrie kind of flirting with this officer named uh, Jay. And they both kind of share stories about different Avengers fights they were involved in and how they were saved. Uh, they talk about the story with Nefaria and Grey Gargoyle. Uh, the officer then talks about a weird encounter he had with Tony Stark at a bar where he kind of like, like yells at Tony Stark and then Tony Stark flies off and comes back as, as Iron Man. He's like, so uh, my boss talked to me about you, and uh, you're right. Uh, he's a piece of shit. So that's kind of funny. Um, and then we get Carrie telling a story of running into Wonder Man and basically like telling him like buzz off, and like Wonder Man's like, "What did I do?" And it's just because Simon Williams is a loser. So that's funny. Um, she actually makes a mention too about how she was actually more attracted to Beast, who was actually with Wonder Man when they left Avengers Mansion. So it's kind of funny. We kind of like 
get some like allusions to Avengers history in this story. Uh, at the end, we then see Iron Man show up and fly a guy who is actually dying in the bunker to the hospital. And we get this backstory about how Jay like got like this one, like from that, that scene earlier, he got like this one, like IOU thing from Iron Man. So he used it to save this, this dying man. And after they get out of the bunker, Jay and Carrie end up going on a date. So, um, I can see where they were trying to angle. They were trying to get at with this issue, but I don't know the art in, in particular. I just wasn't a big fan of either. There's one panel with Iron Man's face that just looks downright disgusting and awful. I mean, it's like a close-up shot that shows like his teeth and his eyes, and it looks awful. Like I wish we could show it here somehow, but um, just not a big fan of the of the art and the story. Just was very lackluster for me. So, uh, what do you guys think? Vince, I know has some strong opinions on this, so I'll hand it off to him. Well, I don't know about strong opinions. It's more like wasting people's time. Um, I think this is the worst one of these snapshots we've read so far. But I feel like I think you guys have been a little bit critical on one or two of them already. Um, I've liked most of them, and I like this one overall. I like the general idea. This one feels like the most Marvels-esque, um, you know, as far as the original idea of you know, through the eyes of the average man when a lot of these have not been, a lot of these, it's just been an excuse to tell like a retro story. And this is closer to Marvel's than Howard Jake and Spidey, which you guys were not a fan of, which I liked a bit. But that one was like, you know, Spidey was on like two panels and this one, it's still, it's totally the perspective on the superheroes through that, you know, man on the streets eyes. Um, but there's some clunky dialogue here. Like the whole thing where like, what are they, what are their names? Carrie and and Jay. I don't remember her, whatever. Where they have like this weird repartee where it's like not a professional and like it's really weird. They have like these weird like in joke pet name type of things that they develop for each other really quickly. And yeah, so the overall issue, I don't have that much more to say. But as far as the background, this is all circa like nineteen seventy eight to eighty one or so mostly the David Michelinie run. So the giant mecha that you really just see its foot in the beginning, that's Red Ronin, who was originally actually created for the Godzilla comics to go up against Godzilla. But here, that scene is, is basically referencing directly Avengers 198 to 199. And then you see Nefaria, and that has to be Avengers 164 to 166. And actually kind of like clarifying like some of the timeline stuff for me, kind of brought up the other like negative that I had with this where the pacing and this like order of events seemed kind of unclear to me because they're both telling each other like these stories in their past, but you know, he's a cop, so it makes sense, but she's wearing the exact same thing in all these stories ever throughout the entire issue. She's wearing like her running gear, which I guess it makes sense. You know, maybe she goes out and wears the exact same thing and goes running every day, but it kind of confused me. Um, and maybe that's because I'm stupid. But and then I just wanted to note on um, first of all, you've seen the full credits. I totally glossed over that Tom Palmer is inking this because he's seventy-eight years old. Um, but he inked the Avengers basically from like probably like two like two twenty or something all the way through probably three eighty. I don't know. 
really long ass time, like through the entire Roger Stern run, all the way through basically Onslaught and Bob Harris. Um, so really um, cool that they actually got him to you know get on this. I don't know that the art is fantastic, and maybe that's part of it, but you know, in a in a kind of metal way, it's cool. But Barbara Kiesel also probably the lowest profile name that or or least relevant name that we've seen on these books so far. But she does have a deep history in comics. She started editing at DC in the 80s, you know, more or less around the time this book is set. And probably her the height of her career was co-creating and writing the new version of Hawk and Dove with Rob Liefeld uh, initially as the artist and her at the time husband, Carl Kiesel. Um, they divorced, but I guess she still uses the name because that's what she's recognizable as. And then she was involved in Dark Horse and was involved in CrossGen and things like that. But she hasn't really been like, you know, a major force in comics probably in 15 years at the minimum. So, yeah, I thought it was kind of weak, but kind of interesting on stupid levels that appeal to me. I like this one marginally better than the Howard Chaikin Spider-Man one, but not by much. Uh, yeah, it, I don't know. The Cyclops one has been my favorite, maybe. I, or I can't remember all of them. I'll have to, when they're all said and done, I'll flip back through. But yeah, like it was, yeah, the art was rough in spots, but I also like liked it in places too. I don't know. The fact that it was supposed to be more of a throwbacky kind of era, I felt like the art helped it a little bit, but also like, yeah, Dan's right. There's some wonky looking faces in there. Um, but, you know, Iron Man was wearing the classic armor, so that's a plus. But like, I, I liked the story they were going for, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't fantastic. And definitely, you know, uh, near the bottom tier of, of these uh, Marvel snapshots uh, issues. But, yeah. <laughs> I actually thought the Iron Man usage was a little weird because for the first like half the issue, it's kind of presented as like as if Iron Man is a dick. Because Jay or Carrie or whatever his name is basically is talking to, you know, talking to Tony in the bar and like calling him out with legitimate points. And Tony's just kind of like, you know, he doesn't have much to say. He's just kind of frustrated. He storms out of the bar, turns into Iron Man. And of course, this is in the secret ID era. And then you see him confront him in the alley. So, you know, if you don't, you know, before you read further, it almost seems like Tony got in the suit and is like about to beat up this guy for talking shit on iron man and the avengers and then you don't see like that tone that iron man is like hey here's this number you can call whenever there's a huge emergency and i will make sure to help you out you don't see that until the very end of the book so you just think like he had this really weird like confrontational encounter with with iron man i thought that was funny um, yeah. but our our next book is the final issue, but not really, of Aquaman. This is number 65. There is a 66, but it's part of Endless Winter. This is the final issue of Kelly Sudeconic's run, art here by Miguel Mendoncha. Credits page has a Superman creator credit, um, which just kind of stood out to me because I, I imagine if it was ever a big deal, DC would, you know, be the editors would be smart enough to say, hey, let's put the credits on the last page instead of the first page. But, you know, the whole creator credit I wonder if there's any ever been a situation where that's actually kind of been an accidental major spoiler um, that just randomly came to mind. But Arthur, he's on the ocean floor. He got stabbed in the chest by Orm, uh, Ocean Master, at the end of the last issue. And Orm has basically won the war. His forces are overwhelming here. But Aquaman, at the end, he basically did his like call thing. 
you know, usually you just affect, you just expect, oh, he's going to, you know, there's going to be a big shark. But it's supposed to be a bigger deal here. So he calls the old gods, which are like these, like, you know, various different kinds of ocean mythology that were introduced in KSD's first arc, which I didn't actually read. But, you know, I've seen them along the way. Obviously, also Aqualad shows up, the weird Mecha Manta, the grandfather Manta, Black Manta uh, Mech shows up, Tempest, Dolphin. But also, basically, the Justice League, we have Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Barry, and Jon Stewart uh, repping the Green Lantern here. And it's funny because specifically Jon Stewart, he's never quite close enough in the panels or detailed enough for me to tell who it was. And the coloring isn't clear either, which is how you would expect. But uh, Mike, who is a, a lot bigger of a Green Lantern fan than, my, than I am, did remind me that their costumes are slightly different as far as their masks and their gloves and things like that. Um, so now Orm flails around and he's outgunned and he's like, hey, kill me. You know, that's how these combat, you know, these duels work. Obviously, Arthur doesn't kill him. The super powerful ocean spirit girl is convinced to turn sides because and she was taking control of Mera the entire time. And then Mera apologizes um, for, you know, dis, uh, for kind of not paying attention to certain things in Atlantis and letting some citizens suffer. Um, and then that's basically where that part of the issue ends. They are going to move forward and build a new Atlantis with some kind of democratic or Republican structure and a symbolic empty throne. So they've gotten rid of the monarchy, which for one, I'm, I can't say off the top of my head, but I feel like this has happened at least once before in Aquaman or at least been teased. I don't know. Um, but it's also kind of a major change. Uh, and it's, it's though it's fairly easy, easily reversible. I don't really like it. Like, this is this totally comes off like this entire plot thread totally comes off as KSD is like, you know, she doesn't like monarchies in real life. So it's like, let's get rid of the knock, man. And, you know, you can tell a story of, you know, the, the Atlantean monarchy being messed up. And that's like half of Aquaman stories. But I think it's a little I don't know. I don't really like her getting rid of the monarchy. Um, and then the, the new family, Arthur Mara and their daughter, Andy. And I don't know that I've, I'm sure I just forgot, but I don't know that we saw in a previous issue her full name is Andrina, maybe when she very first appeared. But I noticed when they gave her full name here, but she goes by Andy. They're chilling in Amnesty Bay and they get kind of a mission. So it's like they hand off the baby to one of their old god friends, and, which is a nice moment because it's like, you know, all the editors and fans who are like, we can't have mature superheroes. They're not interesting. Like you. It's dangerous to have a family. And granted, Aquaman is the character whose kid was killed. But, like, yeah, like, Peter can just hand off Mayday, like, baby Mayday to his roommate. Not a roommate. I mean, you'd assume he wouldn't have a roommate. But, you know, drop her off with Aunt May while he's swinging. Who gives a shit? And then he goes and does his thing. Um, You don't have to make it this mess. um, And, you know, you can manage it. But... They go to Arthur and Mare go to do a mission, but it's a ruse for their marriage. Um, so they get married. Uh, next issue ties in Endless Winter, so I'm skipping that, and I think it's over. I don't know that they'll have an issue past that. The marriage splash page, it is a double page splash, but it's kind of underwhelming in the, you know, in the pantheon of superhero weddings. It's kind of like the bare minimum of characters on the page when you usually expect like 
the entire DC universe show up. I mean, it depends, you know, some of them, like when Superman got married, it was, it was secret ID related. So you didn't quite have that, but you know, when you have these major moments, you want to see a ton of these characters, like the deep cuts, John Stewart again is there because he was in the, because he was in this issue already. And he's, I guess he's a current league member. Honestly, I don't know the status of the Justice League, you know, as related to metal and the tie-in series and all that stuff. But like Hal Jordan didn't show up to, didn't want to show up to Aquaman's wedding, like Guy Gardner, um, you know, Kyle, who Arthur was on the Justice League with as well. Ollie, Dinah, Ray Palmer, Hawkman, you know, you can go on and on. Some of the Titans members who are obviously, you know, close friends and, and know Arthur through their relationship with both Garth and and uh, Jackson. And then there are countless other Aquaman characters that don't appear here. Like there's this character called Merc, who Jeff Johns created, and he was prominent through the entire Jeff Johns, Jeff Parker, Dan Abnett eras. And granted, KSD didn't have him show up once, but like for this big moment, you think, you know, some even an editor would be like, hey, sneak this character in here. Lagoon Boy's not here, but oh, right, that's because Tom King murdered him in Heroes in Crisis. Overall, this was a decent run. I already made the point about the monarchy, but on top of that, and kind of for KSD to get to that point, she basically just roped in Orm all of a sudden. It was kind of rough, it felt kind of rushed. And he goes back to his kind of generic, pouty little brother villain role which you know you see in the movie and which he's done for 75 years but the thing is through you know through john's and, and particularly through abnet and everything and he had a one shot which i reviewed on the show way back um while this run was going on he had gone through a lot of character development and she kind of just washed that away pun intended um there's several moments throughout the run and i've commented on along the way where arthur and mara just feel just slightly out of character a little bit jokey and also, you know, their their engagement was like literally like four years ago when Rebirth started, but they were directed before Rebirth started, I, I think. But because during KSD's run, Arthur and Mara basically barely interacted with each other, and her run lasted two years, um, which some people may or may not realize. But that's because the first arc, you know, Mara had accidentally quote unquote killed Arthur, so then his he's lost his memory and they're separated and then they're still separated and they finally get back together and, and then everything like that. So it, it feel, even the marriage feels slightly rushed, even though it's been like going on four years leading to it. But I thought she, um, I, the, actually getting to the marriage is nice. I, I like the kid, you know, old school Aquaman fans, they might feel weird and nitpick like, okay, this, this Aqua baby is a girl versus the original was a boy. But it's not like they really wanted to, you know, tell the exact same story again. And I like Andy. You know, she's had some cute moments so far. Some of the new lore and characters, like the old gods that KSD used, they're pretty cool. Hopefully will be used moving forward. She used Jackson well. Um, and the art was always strong. But it's kind of weird. I don't know how people are going to look or back on this run overall. Because she didn't really lift sales a ton, as far as I know. So ultimately, I kind of wish that Abnet had just been given a little bit more rope so that he could get, you know, because he set up the engagement. He had a really long run starting even before Rebirth, and his run was really acclaimed. Um, and so it would have been nice, you know, if he could handle the marriage. And he was even moving forward at, like, you know, before they announced KSD, there were certain 
solicitations for like the final trade of his run and I mentioned the marriage and everything like that. So it's very clear that there was some kind of editorial thing. But, you know, that's always the case with, you know, big two comics. But overall, it was a fun run. And uh, just like Hawkman, I have no idea when I'll read an Aquaman comic again. Okay, so transitioning over to our premiere book at DC. At least that's what they want you to think. Uh, we have Batman number 103, um, written by James Tynan, with art by Ca- Carlos Pagulian, Danny Mickey, and Gulen March. I'm sorry if I butchered your names. Um, our story opens many years ago where we see Bruce chilling in the Gobi Desert when Ghostmaker shows up to tell Bruce that he is vulnerable and weak. So kind of just tempting him. And um, sorry, we then go back to present day where Batman and Ghostmaker are fighting while Bruce tries to protect this boy named Clown Hunter. Um, I've been a few issues off of this book, so forgive me for not knowing all these characters, but Clown Hunter runs away as Batman and Ghostmaker continue to fight each other. Uh, Meanwhile, at Harley Quinn's apartment, she is thinking about Poison Ivy, I guess, when Clown Hunter shows up and tries to kill Harley Quinn. Um, Harley is able to handle handle him after a little bit until Batman comes crashing through the window along with Ghostmaker. Um, Ghostmaker then knocks out Harley Quinn and Batman as he proclaims that he will show Gotham what it looks like to have a real crime fighter in charge. And that's kind of where our issue ends. Um, Obviously my co-host can kind of fill in the gaps on some of these things that I may have missed um, since I've been off this issue for a little bit, but uh, I don't know. I thought this was a pretty cool issue. Uh, Ghostmaker seems like an interesting character. Um, That's pretty much all I got. Ghostmaker isn't interesting at all. Let's see. Okay. Sucks. It's like a <laughs> lamer version of Moon Knight. No, Moon Knight's cool. <laughs> um, he's like, he, I, I, I called him just like white suited Deadpool in the last one, where he's got his little mask and his swords and his oh his, his ghost net where no one can hack him. Like, and he, he's like, it's like, it's like a tale of two halves for me. On one hand, Tynan's trying to establish like more lore and Bruce, you know, training to become Batman. He had this rival in training. Okay, that's kind of neat, but it's just like, oh, it, his whole goal is that I can do Batman better than Batman. And in the fight, he's just like, I, I took out these people without even leaving my plane. Like, I, I did all of this for Astra, and Bruce was just like, no, you ruined a stake out of months, and we would have gotten more crime solved this way, and you screwed it all up. So it's like, oh, okay, so in two issues you've established that Batman's better. So it, it also like, okay, Batman stabbed and we know he's going to, you know, obviously recover. I, I feel like it's unfair to me to look at it like that, but it's just like, I, it, Tynan keeps trying to push his new villains. And I, as I've said, Batman has a rogues gallery that's already like a hundred miles deep. Like we don't need more fluff to it where no one's going to remember them. Especially if, you know, Batman's going to pump, punk them out in like three issues and then, you know, they're just fed. Um, but it's kind of like the John Cena Hulk Hogan syndrome. Like once once they defeat the bad guy right down the totem pole, you go. Who's next? 
I Carlo Pagulan and Danny Miki on inks, like we that was good, but like Guillaume March is also listed here as they just list them all as artists. So it's weird that Guillaume March is like the was like the was the one B to Jorge Jimenez when the when Tynan first started. Now it looks like Pagulan. I I don't know why this book needed three combined artists on it. It it, it I don't know why. Um, I do know it. You know, it comes out every other week. That might be a thing. Also, like Con Hunter isn't cool to me. Like he's a seventeen-year-old kid who beats up Joker thugs, and like don't I like you know the last thing, uh, Dan. What Batman needs is another yeah. sidekick. Like, <laughs> That's or I, true. though I guess with him trying with him finding out more about Harley, maybe he becomes Harley's sidekick. I feel like that's what he's going to do with that. That might be more fun. But like, yeah, I. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep reading this. I'll stick out the arc maybe and see how I feel. But when it comes to Batman books that I'm enjoying, uh, it's detective still over this. It's just a lot of things that I, you know, I'm not crazy about. Um, But to digress, you have anything else? I don't. Uh, No, it it just feels weird. It just feels like it's been so long ago since Tom King was writing this book. I mean, Hey, next when we come back, December second, the week of December second, Batman Catwoman. So he'll he'll be back. And Thank God. No matter what you say to me, that's the main Batman book. I don't care. That's that's the A book to me when that comes out. Pretty much. So we'll we'll look forward to that when we come back for a regular show format. But I'll head into Captain America twenty five, which Captain America twenty five, Tennessee Coates. And Leonard Kirk, another art change, and then Matt Miller on inks. This is, we get two stories here. It's an oversized uh, special anniversary issue because 25 issues mean something now. Uh, the Promise was the backup story by Anthony Falcone and Michael Cho. The Michael Cho art, by the way, fantastic. And that was the better story in this. Uh, this is the big extraction by Cap and Sharon with the Daughters of Liberty to rescue Peggy Carter, who was captured by Alexa Lucan and the Red Skull back in Madripoor. That was kind of like the B plot that was going on while Sharon is kind of overtaken the spotlight protagonist role in the book uh she got her youth back a couple issues ago and yeah once again sharon's taking center stage here uh she gets all the narration and monologue while caps in the background directing the action um and that's been the case here for i kind of feel dan like the last half of 2019 and 2020 um some cool action set pieces by kirk here um i would have rather seen bob q on art but letting kirk's fine uh peggy is taken into a helicopter but she, you know, does some Black Widow type moves to get herself out of the, you know, getting out of herself captured. And uh, then like a grenade explodes and now she's falling down. So, oh, is she going to die? We'll see. And uh, the next issue teases uh, Cap versus Red Hulk because we know Thunderbolt Ross has been also in this kind of extraction. So that was it, that was fine. I, I kind of feel like this Coats run that started with a lot of promise is then kind of an underwhelming. And then as we go in, I think in February, this book is one of a lot of core Marvel titles that just isn't solicited that month. I don't think this book is solicited past uh, issue 27. So that's weird. We'll see what's going on there. I know Coates is bringing back uh, Black Panther for his uh, finale on that in February, I believe. So maybe uh, one takes a break while he takes over the other. We'll see. The backup story here called The Promise by Anthony Falcone and Michael Cho, though, fantastic. Cap speaking at a funeral for his friend Sung Jin, who was an immigrant who came to America and became an immigration lawyer, 
uh, fighting and overcoming his own obstacles and social issues in America. And he and Cap kind of bond over the beliefs of the greatness of the country, but also striving to make it better. Uh, he was he was working at a diner and Cap came in after like one of the long nights when he first came back from fighting with the Avengers. Um, and he, he made them food and they kind of uh, started, you know, shooting the shit and talking and they developed a pretty cool friendship. So his history is kind of juxtaposed with Caps throughout time and how they made changes. I thought it was really, really good. Um, and it's the center of the character. It may be like, it, it's, it, it's a common framing device for Cap, but at least like, it was different enough for me where it wasn't like, oh, he fought with him in World War II. Like, this is an actual friend that he had after coming back into the world. And it was someone he kind of bonded with and grew a friendship with after being, you know, being the man out of time rather than being the World War II hero, which I thought was a, you know, a much more kind of different spin on that trope of a story. But, oh, man, the Michael Cho art's fantastic. I would, if I had money, would love to get some uh pages of this on a wall somewhere because it was really really good i think vince read the backup so i'll bring all three of us in to talk about it but i thought you know the backup story was good uh good to great uh the you know the main story is it's it's been what it's been for the last few issues yeah i mean it's 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 pretty I guess shocking or surprising when the backup issue is better than the main story. And I feel like that's the case with this issue. Um, like you said, the art, the storytelling is, is very classic to like the type of setting you, you expect to see cap in with a story like that. But yeah, just, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like Coates's run has kind of like started to coast a little bit here for me. I don't, I'm not really, I agree. As invested in it as I was when I first picked it up. So I'm hoping that turns around after this. I mean, the whole plot line with the Iron Patriot armor and the, the city and rescuing the people, I didn't, wasn't really invested in that as much. But we'll see. You know, this might be the beginning of a new run, which I might, or a new part of this run that I might like. So we'll find out. Yeah, I, I hope Coach doesn't leave because, like, it feels like he hasn't really done a lot in you know 25 issues you know at least solicited through 27 i wouldn't want them to just like pivot and get to someone else i feel like that would be a you know a you know an injustice to him like a disservice to him because like i feel like he has stuff he wants to do it's just you know not getting there but you know if it's not moving the numbers or moving the chain they're gonna have to make a switch but uh vince thoughts on the backup yeah um that that's all i read i just skipped to that i think this is worth a pickup for any fans of cap or, or just in general just for those backups uh he uses the, the mate like a trope that you see in tons of cap stories the idea of the random old or dead guy who steve knew through his long life um you know i can you know off the top of my head i can definitely name at least two or three other instances of that um i'm sure mike liked the born again reference which was c- pretty cool to see it's pretty awesome. some of the some of the stories a little on the nose with kind of the themes and everything like that, but um, overall it's really great. And I think the script by Anthony Falcone or, or how do you pronounce it? Um, I think deserves some, some props as well. I mean, the, you know, people are reading this story and you know, the first thing that hits you is Michael Cho's art, which is pretty much perfect because he very, very rarely does interiors, but I thought the script matched it very well. And this is, you know, for just, I think it's a 10 page story. One of, I mean, honestly, I think this is the best Captain America story I've read. I mean, it's not like I've been reading Captain America. Um, and I get, you know, the Mark Wade run, the 
third Mark Wade run. Uh, wasn't super long ago and uh, touched on a lot of similar issues and had similarly amazing, you know, similar, loosely similar style art. But um, yeah, this was great. Yeah, I, I, I agree. This issue is worth the pickup just for the backup. And like, it's so good that it like it's in contention for me for pick of the week, but also I, I there wasn't a lot I loved this week. So like, you know, I'll take 10 pages, you know, I'll take 10 page, uh, 10, 10 great pages. I can't talk. Um, yeah, I'll take 10 great pages over, you know, other books that I definitely read this week to propel it over some others. But for what it, uh, for what it is worth, um, because I think it may have been recently solicited or something kind of at around the same time that I was reading the books for this week, I did notice that, Cho's name is in the credits for the second hardcover of this run, so they will be collecting this backup alongside the the whole run, which is nice. Just nice to point out. No, that's good. Uh, Dan, we'll go to you for Fantastic Four. All right, so this is the first uh, Fantastic Four issue I'm reading from Dan Slot's run. So. Um, we get into Fantastic Four number 26, written by who other than Dan Slott. Can't wait to see how he destroys these characters like he did with my boy. Anyway, um, we get art here also by R.B. Silva. So our story opens in the Everglades, where we see none other than Man-Thing attack the Human Torch before running away like a little scaredy cat. And that's the last time we ever see him in this issue, so that's weird. Anyway, uh, Torch talks more about the Forever Gate with Sky before heading back to Spire, which is um, Sky's home planet, I guess. Back at the Forever Gate, we also see um, Sue and Reed having a press conference proclaiming that th- they will protect the gate and will try to protect it from the powers that be, while Reed is also kind of like gushing over the the science aspect of it. And Sue's like, okay, we're, we're leaving before you draw more suspicions about this gate here um so as they kind of retire back to their house or whatever we see valeria sneak off to this like prehistoric land to be with this guy named arboro who turns out to be like a womanizer because he's like oh you can be here you can be my girlfriend along with all these other girlfriends that i have and valeria's like ew i don't want that and then she comes back to earth and starts crying about boys uh franklin shows up and he finds out about the powers of the portal as well. And he heads to Krakoa. Uh, well, he tries to. And Professor X is like, stop. You're not going anywhere. Turn back around and head back. You're not a mutant. Get the hell out of here. And I'm just like, damn, Professor X, savage AF. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, concerns come to, um, or we get some, um, we get some like parents that come to Ben and Alicia um, to ask him for help to find their kids that were in the future foundation. And I guess never were found. So a little surprised to be seeing that here, like so many years later, I guess I'm not sure when that happened, but anyways, the fantastic four end up finding them and freeing them as human torch runs into his ex-wife, uh, Elijah, who I guess is a scroll and, um, the FF bring her up to speed on the events of empire. So, Go check out those podcasts where we talked about uh, last summer's was it last summer. No, I don't know if it was last summer. Yeah, it was or this past summer. Excuse me. Um, the event Empire, where the Scroll and Cree factions teamed up to take down the Katadi. I believe it was. Anyways, um, so Johnny and Sky have an argument um, 
kind of about this whole Elijah ex-wife type of stuff. And as they're arguing by the force gate, we see these monsters that are led by this person named the Griever. They come through and they start like unleashing chaos. And that's where our issue ends. So um, this issue was kind of a slog for me a little bit at times. I felt like there was a lot of explanation and some things I'm like, okay, why are we doing this now when we just suddenly talked about doing something else? Um, I don't know. I won't be back for issue 27. Maybe it's because I missed the first 25 issues. That probably would also be an example of this, but um, I guess in, in some ways, Dan Slott's not ruining this, this book as fast as he did Iron Man, so that's good to see, but uh, I'll open it up to Vince to kind of see what he thinks about this issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not as negative on it. I thought the issue was kind of fine. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to follow it. I think the art is good by R.B. Silva, and I'm pretty okay with it. Um, I mostly have some weird comments to make. Um, so off the bat, as Dan mentioned, Man-Thing is in here for like two panels. And it's, it's just, I guess he's just there to draw the connection to the you know, the Forever Gate and his thing, the nexus of all realities. Um, but it's kind of interesting that Slot seems to think, and, I, and I'll, I'll take it, you know, between him and his editor, I'll assume that he's right, that this is the first face-to-face meeting of the Human Torch and Man thing, which is kind of surprising. You know, you very rarely, besides new characters, you know, these really old characters, you know, Man thing goes back to the, you know, early to mid-70s. It's surprising that, you know, it's taken 50 years for these two characters to, to meet each other. Um, but he does reference how the thing has run across man thing multiple times. Um, but I, you know, I can't think of any examples to say that he's wrong. Uh, apparently the sky character is Johnny's new girlfriend has been around for like 10 issues, like nearly a year, but she didn't appear on in the exact last issue, which was a jumping on point. So that kind of threw me off. Obviously Dan, has even less of a clue because he didn't read the last issue, which introduced a lot of the other things in here. Um, Valeria's little harem mix-up is funny, but then she goes into teenage cringe, and it's not a surprise that Dan Slott cannot write a teenage girl. But I also don't think it's like... I don't think it's super, super, super cringy. Um, like, it's it's kind of... in char- It's in character as far as what you'd expect from any old media, um, which which means it's bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. And then the huge retcon, like, I, this is amazing. Like, this is a giant retcon making Franklin not a mutant, and furthermore, that he's never been a mutant, which is kind of sus because Dawn of X and that entire thing, like, in the stupid data pages, Hickman has specifically referenced Franklin multiple times that he's an omega-level mutant, that he is critical to something related to mutants. And also there was the whole crossover between X-Men and Fantastic Four, which the entire point of that crossover was tension over his mutantdom. And that crossover like basically isn't referenced here. It's very weird. Um, and it's just a huge tinkering because you have other things like alternate, you know, dimension ver- timeline version of Franklin is a crucial part of the days of future past timeline. And, you know, he gets killed by Sentinels and everything. He's in the mutant camps in that book. Well, you know, in scenes when they flash back to that timeline. It's so weird. And then even bigger, like this book low-key was like two huge things 
which got me excited. One of them really angered me, and that was the Franklin retcon. But Lijah shows up, which is a huge deal because Lijah is like a character that I like low-key think is underrated and should be in this run. And Empire was the perfect... Well, first of all, when Thing and Alicia got married and then Johnny was kind of the last bachelor out, the fifth wheel, I was like, perfect opportunity to bring back Elijah. And then we got Empire, huge scroll arc, the biggest thing since Secret Invasion, bring back Elijah. And they didn't do it, so I was like, all right, I give up. Now she randomly shows up here, just out of nowhere, like kind of, you know, not drummed up i don't know that i've seen any stupid articles about it um and i i'm I'm kind of okay with it that way i'm not sure if it would be better if she showed up in the middle of empire or if she shows up afterwards and then she has to get adjusted and figure out the whole status quo because that's kind of similar to what happened when they had a brief encounter during secret invasion where she's like you know you know i don't want to get tangled up in this um and then there's also another like kind of undercover really cool moment in this issue where Ricky Barnes, who is the Bucky from the Heroes Reborn universe created by Rob Liefeld and Jeff Loeb, I guess she was in this iteration of the Future Foundation and she meets Franklin apparently for the first time ever. And she's like, hey, um, you kind of like created me because you created like the Counter-Earth, you know, after, during Onslaught. So like I'm kind of meeting my God and they're like the same age. It's really weird, but also like in a weird, very comic booky sci-fi way, like kind of really cool. Um, so this book, the actual story, not that interesting, but like three huge things, which just like caught me completely off guard. And I'm going to stick with it. Fair enough. Um, and then I'll just roll right along with our next book, Grendel, Kentucky, number three. I don't have as much to say on this. Jeff McComsey, Tommy Lee Edwards. So the grandpappy drops the exposition on the town and particularly the, the main characters about the backstory of this town of Grendel. So when he was a teen, the mine in their town collapsed. Everyone worked in the mine, including kids. And the mo- this monster ate all of the miners and his family except for him. And then when he got out and escaped the mine, you know, fallout, Suddenly, their crops all through town started flourishing until suddenly they weren't. So something happened, and eventually he pieced it together and figured out that this monster thing somehow basically feeding the monster literally kind of helps the town flourish. So he, through time, he would like feed, he would like trick homeless people to go in the thing with him, and he basically feed homeless people or like drunks or and things like that to the mountain. And the main character's father eventually took over that duty when he got old enough. But then there was debate over passing along to the kids who are our two main characters here. So the dad decided, hey, I'm going to try and you know end this for, for once and for all. So he went in on a suicide mission, and that's basically where the entire series started. So the family goes out to hunt the monster because they're like, you know, fuck this. And the monster's already been out of the mountain and, you know, killing people and stuff. They end up cutting its arm off. They leave it bleeding out in the mountain. But it turns out it either wasn't the only one or maybe it healed and transformed and stuff. Because then uh, one of the other characters, one of the main characters wakes up uh, from a nap in the end of the book and is surrounded by bodies and gore and the monster's back right next to him. And the next issue is the last. So we'll see. Um, 
yeah, the art is the star here. It's kind of interesting story. Um, I've been enjoying it. I will finish it up with the last issue. For Dark Knight's Death Metal number five, Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, Jonathan Lapion, whole gang, still crushing it. You know, you know, art team wise on the issue. Just League's plan to steal that crisis energy totally backfires as they're spanked by the Robin King. It's a sentence I just wrote. Uh, Lex Lex Luthor shows up to tell the heroes that they're doing this all wrong, and you know, instead of trying to restart the universe, they need to end it into into nothing so they can build a new from that. So now the plan is for them to shift the Earth like off its axis and energy, which will cause the Batman who tries too hard to lose control and influence. And then it's just like him and five worlds, they think, since, you know, Perpetua destroyed the multiverse. So, you know, simple enough. So not as quite, though, as there's a lot more than five left. They see there's like hundreds still. Um, and then also Batman reveals that uh, he's been dead the whole time. And that's how he's been able to use the Black Lantern ring. So we got a pretty cool uh, shot of the Trinity, you know, trying to band together. So the next two issues, I want to say two issues, but like there's like hundreds of one shots that are, that, you know, stretch this thing out that Scott Snyder is still writing. So why didn't you just make it uh, whatever? Um, So the next two issues uh, should do some big fighting. Also, Wonder Woman uses Lobo's blood to like regrow. Uh, and make more Lobos. So there's like now an army of Lobos. So that's, you know, still wild and crazy stuff here. I like that Wonder Woman's kind of taking the center stage as the leader here. That's kind of cool. But, you know, I still hate this, but whatever. We'll figure out what DC's plans of publishing are going to be. We'll post this and then, you know, a couple months till future state. Uh, but Ice Cream Man time. Yes. Issue 21 by W. Maxwell Prince, Martin Morazzo. And particularly highlight this issue for colorist Chris O'Halloran. Um, so this isn't quite as interesting as or experimental as some of the other Ice Cream Man issues that we, I've talked about on the show and that I've read. This issue is basically styled after Watchmen. So O'Halloran turns in some fun John Higgins-esque coloring. We have a private detective with a failing marriage and a very serious addiction to nicotine. He's hired to find a missing ice cream truck driver. And it turns out several have gone missing, and there's some weird cult involved. And they use the symbology of a frowning face. You know, it's just like the smiley face button from Watchmen. And it turns out that that this ice cream mega corporation is killing ice cream truck drivers. And it's not really clear why. There's some you know nonsense cult thing. They get them naked, and they surround, and they all wear weird robes, and then someone eats them, maybe. Uh, but the detective basically, you know, he follows the leads and he thinks he's figured it out and then there's nothing. And then he basically just gives up in the end and says, fuck it. Um, and it's sex with his wife. And so his marriage is fixed. This was fun. Um, it's not the most horrific or experimental issue, but it does the Watchmen nods pretty well. And I would read this issue over the next issue of Rorschach, which I think may have actually come out. To me. Yeah, I did. So uh, I was going to say, does. Does W. Maxwell, Prince, Chris O'Halloran, uh, do they do uh, nine panel grids and colors better than Tom King does for uh, references? Uh, it, your, your mileage may vary. But no, this was still fun. Uh, this is, I think, my first issue of the book I've read on the show. I read, obviously, the, the quarantine special, but uh, this was good. It, it, you know, I've gone back and read a few other issues. I guess this was more of a 
better uplifting ending for an issue of Ice Cream Man, but like not really. So who knows? But uh, I'm I'm firmly on the Ice Cream Man train. Vince brought me on it. If you're not reading Ice Cream Man, definitely check it out. It's one of the best books that is being published right now, I think. Uh, and, you know, every issue is a one and done. So there's going to be something in it for you eventually. Um, and, you know, art team all around here is is great. Mark Marazzo, Chris O'Hara, and Bobby Maxwell Prince are putting together a very, a very special book that I think we're going to be talking about for a while as this continues on. But I'll shift to Immortal Hulk. Immortal Hulk number 40, Al Ewing, Joe Bennett. Hey, 10 more issues after this one. Um, we begin with Sasquatch waking up from his suspended animation, but it's not Walter. It's Doc Sampson. He was used his green door to access Sasquatch for reanimation. So uh, as he calls himself, say hello to Dr. Sasquatch. So, and then he teams up with Gamma Flight to try to track down the Hulk. And the Hulk is chained up in prison by none other than Henry Peter Gyrich, who is uh, turning, he won't, you know, he's turning and won't letting him, you know, free. He's like put up in these giant mandibles and he's like, hey, those won't change size. And this tips off Joe Fixit because, uh, you know, inside the Hulk's brain, it's Joe and, you know, Child Hulk who uh, have to figure out a plan here as Bruce has, you know, been taken to literal hell by by the leader uh, who's kind of enacted this plan. But Joe realizes that, hey, if those mandibles don't change, tries, uh, uh, Gearich might not know that the status of transformations is a horrible, horrible hellscape. And he just like, bursts and transforms and busts out of the Hulk's chest in an extremely, you know, body horror gore mess. Um, and he, you know, takes a gun, blasts himself out to space to head back to Earth. And Jackie McGee is also with Gamma Flight, also trying to figure out that, hey, the Hulk wasn't responsible for that murder back in that town. Uh, there was something going on with Rick, Rick Jones and he was set up. So it looks like the whole team is, you know, starting to figure it out. And then plus, you know, having Doc Sampson corroborate and back that up. It looks like Gamma Flight might be back on the good guy's side here now. And then back on Earth, the Hulk has now emerged. Like, he's all skinny and, like, broken because, obviously, he's not quite himself. But he emerges on Coney Island, and the Thing has been tipped off of what was going on in space. So he was there kind of waiting for Hulk. And uh, the Thing's waiting for a rematch, even, you know, pointing out that he owes him for a honeymoon, which makes reference all the way back to that Fantastic Four issue where uh, Immortal Hulk showed up. So we'll get to see Al Ewing properly do this rematch here. And uh, that should be fun. I also think Joe Bennett's taken a little bit difference with the arts with this more kind of skinnier Hulk. Uh, it looks like a more of a Jack Kirby face to it, too. So he might go maybe like full Kirby uh, with the with the rematch or the fight between Hulk and Thing in the next issue. We'll see. But, you know, same Mortal Hulk, still good, still great. Uh, I'll throw it back over to Vince for Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices, number one. I'll throw out one tiny trivia that I saw that Alex Ross used for his photo reference for the cover with Henry Gyrich. Actually, I think it's on a future issue, but he based it on Michael Urey, I believe that's how you pronounce it, who was an editor at times for DC and Dark Horse um, and now is kind of in charge of a lot of the publication that Tomorrow's puts out, including Back Issue magazine. Um, so in Marvel Voices and Indigenous Voices, which is kind of a tongue twister, uh, so Marvel Voices is originally a podcast, I guess, covering like diverse parts of Marvel Universe. Now they spun it off into a string of anthology one shots. This is the second one. The first one, I think, was the first one was more based on African-American characters and creators. Um, and the third one is kind of just like a it's called Legacy. I don't really fully understand the premise for that one. But this one is a focus on Native American characters and creators. 
we start with a watcher story, quote unquote. It's really one page and then a double page splash from artist Jeffrey Varege, who um, he's worked with Marvel a little bit in the past. He's done covers. He did covers for the Red Wolf series, you know, several years ago. But it, yeah, again, it's just really two illustrations accompanied by captions. And it's basically him just name dropping all the characters and their tribes that are in the Marvel Universe. There are 16 characters listed here, 10 of which come out of the X-Men franchise or adjacent, like Alpha Flight, which I think is kind of interesting um, just as far as that breaks down. And there's there's all the ones you'd expect, like Warpath and Thunderbird, Echo, White Wingfoot, Red Wolf, Forge, Puma. Um, but then there's, you know, the deep cuts are listed here. And then we have three stories here. The Echo story opens with her checking her texts, including one of Moon Knight flirting with her, which I almost forgot. And I'm mad that this book reminded me because now I have to thank Bendis for that shitty Moon Knight run and having him like get in a relationship with Echo. Um, and also, I guess she appeared in, in a couple issues of Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel run. So they team up or this writer just decided I'm going to have her team up with, you know, one of Marvel's prominent female characters. But actually, it's not Captain Marvel. It's Loki. And his motivation isn't explained, but she goes to help the Badoon on some planet. I don't know. This art in this story particularly is super rough. I'm not going to lie. And I think the writing might actually be worse than the art. Um, it's incredibly cringy. But the second story, it's Mirage and Wolfsbane looking into a mugging at a reservation. But actually, the missing kid that they're trying to find stopped the mugging, and so he's on the run. And they end up riding a monster dog through the desert, so there's a little bit of fun in the story. And the kid, who they eventually, you know, find and calm him down and everything, he asks Danny, are you Cheyenne or Krakoan? And she says both, which I think is it's actually a pretty nice conversation. It's nuanced and everything like that. But it's also interesting that, and I'll get to, you know, the main X-Men books later, but that's not how certain other mutants feel. You know, certain other mutants, you know, have sworn off their other identities and they're Krakow and they're mutant only and things like that. So it's interesting to see Danny take that perspective. Um, they have a little standoff with cops, which is a little bit generic, but maybe it's not. Um, and this Native American nation allies with Krakoa, which makes sense because the Native American, you know, tribes and nations, they're all like, you know, like semi-autonomous within the United States. I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole can of worms. But it's interesting to see that kind of alliance with Krupoa. That's very interesting. Um, so actually, the second story, clear standout. And I actually think it would be, you know, this could fit in, like, if they put out an X-Men anthology. I think this actually fits great in with the current status quo and all the regular X-Men themes and everything like that. Last story is about Wolverine character Silver Fox. And there are footnotes to both Wolverine number 10 and number 47 from the first ongoing series. That's basically all I took from it. Um, Silver Fox was like one of Logan's like chicks in his long life. And Sabretooth killed her, stuff like that. But then she comes back. It doesn't matter. Um, this issue is way weaker than the last one, which I did read. But I don't know if it, I don't think I talked about it on the show or anything. Um, but I will just quickly acknowledge that obviously this isn't, quote, for me. Um but there's a little bit of value in it. The middle story is pretty, um, especially if you're a Danny Moonstar fan, I would pick up this issue for that.
over in Venom number 30, which I don't know if I'm going to get a well, – if, if I'll get a uh, play-in key here. Let's see. I think he's here. D- Daniel, give it to Venom, me, please. Venom, Venom. All right. That, this meme won't die. Um, Venom number 30, Donny Cates, Luke Ross – this is the conclusion to Venom Beyond, and uh, I first off, like I'm going to say, I thought this was a really fun arc. Um, I think this was just the right amount of issues too, and you know, a kind of a fun, peaceful ending right before shit's going to get very wild and crazy in King and Black. Is this is the final issue before King and Black? Codex and Anne's factions both discover that the device used to travel interdimensionally from Mac Gargan's armor and visor recording, so it's a race against time to figure out, you know, who can get the materials to build it first because Anne's got Reed Richards and. Codex has a uh, Doc Ock. So Anne learns also to accept Dylan after seeing that her symbiote doesn't react to him when she like goes to give him a hug. And this makes it so that she has a change of heart and they make the plan to attack Codex and win, but they're not going to kill him. So they like launch out this all out offensive and they manage to win and turn Codex by using Dylan's powers while Eddie has him subdued and with their symbiotes to like sync up in their memories so they can give uh Codex who's the future version of Dylan. If you didn't, if you didn't know, like the best of both worlds. So he has, you know, memories of both Eddie and Anne. Um, so his mom and his dad. So it's like, he gets both because obviously in this, you, you know, in this dimension, Eddie died and Anne got the symbiote. And then, you know, 616, Eddie has it. And, uh, you know, 616 Dylan never met his mom. So they kind of sync it up that way. Um, and, you know, they turn him good, but he falls into a coma, but they end up spending like a full year in this dimension. We get a time skip. And, uh, yeah, we flashed to one year later as Eddie and Dylan waited for them to build the machine so they can go back to the dimension. And Eddie also gets a new hand, uh, so he gets a future tech new hand because you lost his hand in Venom Island. And uh, Dylan gets to know his mother, at least in this timeline uh, dimension. So he comes out, you know, getting to know his parents a little bit better. And Eddie actually, like, he doesn't want to leave, but he knows he's got his own scars to work out uh, and write back in the 616 so that apart and they arrive back in New York and all the stars are gone and the skies are pitch black. And they're like, yo, what has happened? And we get, you know, the big, the big, all right, King and Black starts. So, all right, it's time for King and Black. We, we know it's been coming. I'm excited. I'm very, very excited. So Venom Beyond was fun. Luke Ross's art was really fun. I love his style. I'd, lo- I'd like to see him on more stuff at Marvel. I'm very excited for King and Black as uh, we're going to get right into it. Um, I think two weeks I think the show when we come back is King of Black number one. I'm very excited uh, for it as it's creeped in everywhere. And uh, the one shots too. some, some of those sound of exciting, but Vince, it's your time now. It's time for the X-Men corner, which seemed to like dominate half the show. So uh, please to brunt us through quickly go through your multiple X-Men books and we'll all come together and assemble again for the re for the retro. Yeah, I've got a fake X-Men book and then some real X-Men books, and I'll try and go through the real ones quickly because they actually were not as interesting to me. In Juggernaut number three by Fibonicius and Ron Garney, Juggernaut is now in court after he was served for property damage case at the end of last issue. We open with a double-page splash of him fighting Spider-Man because the legal case is bringing up nothing can stop the Juggernaut. Um, You know, Amazing Spider-Man... I don't know what issues, 251? I don't know. Um, or 231, 232, I believe. Uh, but yeah, this when Spidey froze him in the concrete and his defense lawyer 
Here's another deep cut fun reference. His defense lawyer is Bernie Rosenthal, who is Captain America's old 80s girlfriend. And I think Coates has brought her up um, in his Captain America run. I think you guys have mentioned it once or twice. Um, but the trial is interrupted by Quicksand, who's a kind of obscure character attacking. But it's it's uh, quickly clear that she's being controlled somehow. And there's a fight and everything. And, and Juggernaut and his new uh, little teenage sidekick, D-Cell, you know, they figure it out. Um, it's kind of funny because they have to like, you know, Quicksand is literally just like basically a ripoff of Sandman. So they have to like separate her head from her body. Um, so it's kind of funny for a second. And it turns out that Arnim Zola has a position experimenting on superhuman convicts for a for-profit prison company. So that's where we're going to go next. And obviously Kane being a supervillain who's been in, in and out of the prison system throughout his life. Um, and also kind of is turning a leaf, you know, with another semi face turn. He is not a fan of this, uh, you know, Nazi super scientist robot dude experimenting with his fellow supervillains. And then peppered throughout our flashbacks where we see more of Kane, you know, getting his new armor. I think it's pretty much resolved here. I mean, he gets, we see him get the armor. He fights some weird dude who's trying to make it up in the mountains of North Korea. Um, so I don't know that if we'll have more flashbacks. And I'm not certain how long this series lasts. Hopefully at least five issues. Um, this is fun, especially this issue pulling in references and pieces from all over Marvel history and obscure deep cuts, which is what you'd expect from a vet like Nicieza. And Garni's art is still strong. Um, I wish we saw... <laughs> Just because it's such an iconic thing, I wish we'd see a little bit more flashback of Nothing Can Stop Juggernaut and Garney drawing that. But that double-page splash is amazing. Now, real X-Men books, we have X-Force number 14, Hellions number 6, and Cable number 6. And X-Force, Percy brings in Jerry Duggan to co-write, but Kassara draws it as usual. In Hellions, it's the regular creative team of Zeb Wells and Carmen Carnero and Cable, regular creative team, Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto. So I'll run through these relatively quickly. In X-Force, it seems like it's going to be a bunch of fights, which is what we've been waiting for. So we have first Magic and Pog Your Pog fight again. Last time, it was a stupid gotcha moment where the actual battle was a arm wrestling contest, which Magic obviously immediately lost. But this time, it's an actual fight, but they're unarmed, so she can't use the sword, he can't use his swords. But it turns out she figures out that his body is actually like a mecha suit kind of thing. It's like a shell for him. So he swallows her. She then bursts out of his body and reveals the real him, which is like a little creepy little goblin thing, and then punches him. So she wins. Um, and then there's panels where a bunch of them go through torture devices. And then they're rolling boulders up hills and escaping sea monsters underwater. And then they're like at a table eating monkey brains. And then Cypher wins a disco dancing competition. And there's they complete a literal puzzle on the ground. They walk a fashion show, which Storm seems to be good at. And this is just getting a little too cheeky. And then someone has sex with a boulder and someone kills a kitten. You don't see them kill a kitten, but they literally kill a kitten in this book. The only good part was Storm killing death. So at this point, Arako, in terms of points in the competition, is way up. It's like 18 to 6 or something like that. 
But it is worth noting that I believe like two of the Arako people have been killed and one of them is like severely neutered, um, not literally. Though, on the other hand, the X-Men, um, Psylocke, or, no, not Psylocke, Captain Britain died. So Arako is ahead, but like if everyone dies, how does that work? We'll see if that matters at all. And Hellions, this finally connects back to the Hellions subplot, which I basically completely forgot about where Mr. Sinister was leading a team in to try and kind of mess it all up. But it turns out he was tricking everyone. They are not where they're trying to go. They come across a bunch of weird deformed mutants, some of which are cannibals. Havoc is missing an eye before they even get here. And then Nanny immediately dies. Then Havoc gets both of his hands cut off. Then Orphan Maker gets his arm ripped off. And then I think he gets eaten. Sinister gets torn to pieces as the rest of them run away. And it's all for Quanon to take some genetic samples back to Krakoa because Sinister, while they're all getting annihilated, pulls out this little device. And there's like these microscopic little drones that like pick pick apart little pieces like DNA samples from these mutants that are killing them. Um, so they all make it back home only for the real Sinister or maybe it's the clone one. It doesn't matter. That's the whole Sinister thing to greet them back and then murder them all. And then Sinister immediately cries wolf, like, oh, my God, they all died. So we'll see. I mean, there's only like two more chapters, so I don't know where this comes back. Um, and ultimately, the subplot doesn't matter. I mean, it, I'm sure it matters for dumb, stupid Sinister stuff moving forward. Now, in Cable, he loses an actual legitimate sword fight to Cypher's new Arako big wife. And when he loses, though, she spares his uh, death. So when he loses, he contacts his parents, Gene and Scott, but Saturn 9 figures out and cuts the connection. Then Gorgon fights the White Sword, and the White Sword is like some weird thing where like when he kills people, he can like store their soul and then use it as like a thrall. So he can summon a hundred beings, and Gorgon kills 13 of them. So somehow that counts as the score. So now the X-Men are up 19 to 18 when it was previously like 18 to 6. Instead of the X, yeah, so then that's basically where this issue ends. And the next chapter, which is chapter 20 of 22, is another boring Hickman X-Men issue of Apocalypse fighting his wife. Um, I I don't know. I'm kind of, I mean, I'm too deep in that I'm not going to give up, but I kind of wish this was literally just X-Men Mortal Kombat. Which was kind of, I mean, it's not how it was marketed, but it's kind of what everyone expected. But so far, once we've actually entered the tournament, a lot of this is trolling. Um, but that's all I have. Kind of a disappointment in the X-Men. But I highly, highly recommend Juggernaut, which I think is super underrated. And with that, we'll go to our retro book, the final book of uh, the week. Vince wrapped up the final you know, new releases for the week. But... Our retro was from July of 1991. It was DC, and we had some fun options here. We had, you know, Superman, Man of Steel, number one. We had the, I think it was Batman. I can't remember which which number it is, but it was the first night of uh, Tim Drake as Robin. Uh, but we, ultimately, we decided on uh, Justice League Justice League America, number 52, Keith Given and Jam David Hayes, Trevor Von Eden and Keith Given on art, and then an early Adam Hughes cover. And it's a matchup of the century? No. The decade? No. Not that either. 
Nope. It's a it's a matchup of the month as it's Guy Gardner versus Be- Blue Beetle in 12 rounds of boxing. And uh, Ted Cord is embarrassed of his sudden weight gain um, and his costume no longer fits because it got shrunk in the in the wash. And all of his memories of his youth are coming back and haunting him as he was teased because he was overweight as a kid. And he decides to start getting back in shape with Captain Glory and Guy Gardner. And Gardner starts teasing him for his weight, just like the bullies that did. And it sparks an altercation where Glory has to step in and they hash out their problems that way. And, the, and he's just uh, hashing it out in the ring. So they're going to have a boxing match. Kiliwog, who's on the team now, is trying to fill out an immigration form for aliens. Uh, with Martian Manhunter, and of course that's played for the hilarity that it is. And uh, Batman drops by and gets swept into watching the fight, even like wondering why he even still shows up here. Is Batman has always been the straight man in the Boahaha era of the Justice League. So the whole group cheer, uh, you know, gathers around and they're starting to cheer Ted Cord on. And uh, Ted actually wins the first round and it manages to cut Guy um, and uh, causing him nosebleed. Uh, so the sight of his own blood sends him into a rage, which prompts him to hit Ted from behind in the kidneys and the ribs and, uh, you know, injuring him from behind. And, you know, the fight's called there and Martian Manhunter like officially calls this and also calls for uh, the membership of Guy Gardner to be revoked from the JLA. And, uh, you know, Guy storms off and even manages to make Ice, uh, his then girlfriend at the time, cry. So he's definitely like he's full out done as even fire kind of uh, comes to his door later to tell him so. Um, this won't all be official until Max Lord returns as Max Lord's on vacation. Um, so, uh, and uh, we see him, though, returning, though he's suddenly shot and, you know, bleeding out in the street right outside the embassy. So, yeah, that's where we're left. It was a pretty fast read for me, but um, it's, it's a run. It's an era of the Justice League that's kind of nearing the end. This is the final issue before breakdowns, which is, you know, the true end of the Blahaha era of the Justice League, you know, which starts with Justice League International with Given and David Tez. Uh I think Kevin McGuire is long gone at this point because, you know, he's no longer drawing the book, obviously, um, when paying attention to my credit, uh, the credits. But uh, it would transfer over the Justice League. It would get kind of more serious-based with Superman returning. Guy Gardner would eventually come back um, when he had the yellow power ring. He would no longer be a Green Lantern. And then Wonder Woman would be the leading of the team. And then we see Bloodwind, who's Martian Manhunter in disguise. I still don't even know how all that works. Um Obviously, Ted doesn't die. We'd see the JLA get absolutely clowned out by Doomsday in just two more years, uh, where, you know, what was horrible to the Ted Cord then gets worse as uh, Ted Cord almost dies at the hands of Doomsday. And then we get into the horrible p- booster gold power armor days. And those are just some things that I know were coming in the post breakdowns era of the Justice League. Uh, Vince, I'm sure you have more kind of engrossing details, but uh, I'd at least maybe safe to say it's kind of this is the start of the downturn. And uh, Justice League maybe truly doesn't get to the, you know, the peak read like must read status until Morrison and Howard Porter come into lunch at JLA in 1997. And, you know, like I said, this is only 91. So, you know, this is kind of the start of the downturn and start of a, a pretty good era in the 80s that's wrapping up. But, gentlemen, how do you feel about Justice League America number 52? Um, I thought it was good. Uh, I really like the art style. I thought thought that was pretty good art by the the two of those there. But um, no, I mean I think the premise is cool, kind of fun. And don't really know a lot about these characters, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> just don't talk anymore. <laughs> I just muted my mic. All right, so I'm not gonna talk anymore. The end. 
Uh, yeah, I don't have that much to say about the actual issue. It's pretty fun. I miss these characters. Not that I want like the JLI cast as the league roster all the time at all. But like, what the hell is DC doing with Fire and Ice? Um, who are really cool characters. Um, and yeah, the Bloodwind deal is pretty stupid. But I feel like this title is it's pretty solid through about issue 75, which is basically the end of Dan Jurgen's run. I think actually the the Bloodwind mess well it gets it gets messy in like the last two issues of his run right after that. But right. there's other little po- like tiny pockets of good stuff like Christopher Priest on Just League Task Force, which is after this. It's pretty you know it's a low key run. It's um you know it's it's more it's almost more comparable to something like Avengers: The Initiative or something like that. But it's a pretty good run. Um, but yeah, I mean this is as you enter a weak era. I, I do have a question for Dan, though. Uh, I, I feel like I've asked this to him before. Haven't you read the the JLI Omnibus, or have you not read that yet? I, I feel like I've asked you that like three times now, and I still forget. Nope, it's sitting on my shelf, but I have to read it at some point. Okay, because I was like, all right, if you would have read that, obviously, because that team has not deviated yeah. that much uh, at this point. It's I think, who's gone here? Um, Black Canary's gone. Uh, Gnort's gone. Well, a and, lot of it. I mean, Gnort wasn't like the. But yeah. the team fluctuates. You know, Captain Marvel's long gone here too. And Doctor Fate, stuff like that. A lot of characters are only there pretty early on. Yeah, and then it, it kind of gets shorter. Like when when Jurgens takes over with Superman, it's just like, well, yeah, Marshman under blood. It's like Fire and Ice, Ted Cord. Uh, Guy Gardner and Bloodwood, like that's it, and then Superman, like it gets pretty thin near the near the end of it. So, yeah, it's definitely the the nearing end of an era. But then you know, ninety seven, they bring the heavy hitters back, and then you know, Justice League rides that wave of good, to, uh, good to, no. So I don't know. I liked it. I thought it would be different from choosing you know just simple another Batman issue that I've read like three times, and then like. We've done super. We've seen '90s Batman. We've seen '90s Superman. Let's check in on you know early '90s Justice League for the retro. Trying to not always you know pick the safety options there. But gentlemen, picks of the week. Um, I think Juggernaut. Yeah, Dan. I feel like by process of elimination, it has to be Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, nothing else this week was really that good to me. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I if if the Captain America story was more great than just ten pages, I'd give it to Cap. I guess I gotta have to give it mine to also to Amazing Spider-Man number fifty-three. It was a very thin week, but a very large week when it came to books. And uh, as we've said at the beginning of the show, this is our final episode before Thanksgiving. We won't be doing a normal show next week. We've already got it. We do have a show planned for you. We're going to be reviewing the Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips uh, original graphic novel or novella, however you want to call it, uh, Pulp. We all read that and uh, we'll be discussing that. So stay tuned for that one. That also, you know, it'll it'll just be standard. It'll come out Friday. So Definitely be on the lookout for that one. That should be fun. We had a fun discussion doing that. And then we'll be back with a normal show 
week after Thanksgiving. Uh, and then don't worry. I know the finale of X of Swords is next week. Vince will definitely discuss it. And then uh, we'll we'll also recap uh, Spider-Man. And then if anything else was, you know, major, we'll make sure to tack it on in there. So we'll we'll still, you know, we'll pick and choose what, you know, comes into that post Thanksgiving show. This rundown. We've looked at it. But uh, if you are traveling for the holiday, make sure you stay safe, mask up, uh, take the proper precautions, continue to still do so as, you know, we are entering the the winter months and uh, stay safe out there. And, uh, no, that's pretty much all I've got. And, uh, you know, have a happy Thanksgiving next week. So with that, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get out of here. 